Welcome to Honest Retail, the weekly podcast that dishes out the truth about the latest news, trends, and blunders from the CPG, consumer, and retail industries. Now, here are your hosts, Cameron McCarthy, Taylor Foxman, and Carlton Fowler. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of Honest Retail. Uh, joined, as always, by Taylor and CJ, but we also have a guest this week, uh, Alex Jerry, who is an investor at VMG Partners. Uh, had the pleasure of chatting with Alex uh, last week, and I think uh, he spoke with uh, CJ and Taylor in the past. And we've got to know him over the past few weeks. Uh, listener of the show, so we're always excited about getting listeners on the show. Uh, Alex, would love to just kind of hear a little bit about your backgrounds, um, and then we can you know dive right in. Cam, thanks so much for having me, and uh, it's been great to get to know all three of you over the last couple of weeks. And like you said, I'm a big fan of the pod, so uh, pleasure to be on and to, to chat with you guys. Uh, I'm an investor at BMG Partners. We invest in consumer brands and services throughout the ecosystem. And uh, at my core, I'm uh, really passionate about, about the space and uh, you know, excited to, to have a conversation with you today. Awesome. Yeah. VMG, for anybody who doesn't know, they, uh, they're they one of the big kind of investors in the space. You can always tell with uh, Wayne in his pants at any trade show and everything when they're coming by. So uh, that's how I always, that was like my first exposure to VMG was the, those pants at the uh, the trade show. So uh, they're, they're definitely working in a strong marketing tactic for sure. What are, so just about <laughs> those pants, like... <laughs> I want to know, like, does he have multiple pairs of them? I mean, there must be, they must have to get made new when there's new companies. There's, there's probably some kind of cadence. But I mean, like, when he's at a conference for a couple days and I see him always in the pants, are we talking the same pants? Are we talking he's got backups? Like, like, give us the dish, Alex. We need to know. I, I, I think thankfully for everyone's benefit, there's a, there's a couple pairs that kept made in every run. So uh, we're all, we're all good on that front. Okay, good. And then Alex, do you mind sharing kind of some of the, the portfolio companies just so the listeners can get an idea of like kind of where VMG participates? Yeah, so we uh, historically have spent our time very narrowly focused on consumer, um, food and beverage, beauty, personal care, health, wellness, and pet, and have spent a little bit more time in the, in the recent history on consumer services in the fitness and med spa space, as well as uh, in, in supply chain on the co-manufacturing co- co- side, uh, which has been great for us. Uh, some historical brands that have been in the portfolio that you might know would be Kind Bar, Perfect Bar, Quest. Um, we, uh, we were more recently in Nature's Bakery and Lily's on the food and beverage side and have a couple of others that we've invested in more recently, whether that be Goalie Nutrition or K18 or Kosas in the, in the beauty side. So we've been super active and, uh, you know, it's a lot of fun to, to be in this space. Awesome. Um, great. Well, let's, let's kick it off. What's obviously you get probably presented a ton of brands on a weekly basis. What's a, a brand that's kind of caught your eye over the last week or uh, past month here. Yeah. So one, one brand that I've been familiar with for a little while, but I didn't have a chance to try until recently was actually Explore cold brew. Um, and I, I got it on a Delta flight that I was on uh, a couple of weeks ago. So it's an organic, fair trade cold brew concentrate. Tastes great, and you know, obviously there have been a couple in the space that have raised, whether that's Jot or Javi, and, and you know some legacy brands also. But one thing that I thought was was pretty unique about it, and that I liked, was you can actually get four different levels of caffeine. So you can go decaf, low calf, regular calf, or extra calf. And as someone who's trying to do a better job of 
managing my caffeine intake throughout the day. Uh, that I found that was a useful way to to, to sort of regulate. Yeah, so, I, I, sorry, CJ, you're good. Um, I have a couple questions on this. Number one, what do you guys all think of major placements like things like Delta? Because you know, I, I, I good I, question, good question. Unqualified goods, but we have to, you know, they are good, right? Like, you know, usually the, the, the margin is significantly lower. So what you have is like a really interesting top line bump. And then you have to also factor in like, Hey, what is, what is the value of that high level, you know, of that consumer scene? So I'm curious, Alex, when you're, when you're working with the brand, how do you, how do you view high visibility placements like that, that might not have the same margin profile as just flowing through? traditional retail or even D2C? I mean, at the end of the day, you know, there's only so many hours for the entrepreneur to spend time on. And so if you're working really hard to, to prioritize a launch like that, you have to feel like you're getting good ROI. I, I tend to think of it more of a customer acquisition channel than anything else. And so if you feel like um, wherever that placement is aligns with the customer that you're trying to reach and it's going to provide you with visibility and you have a channel for that customer to then go find you in afterwards, whether that be online or in store, uh, I think that's probably the most useful way to approach it. And so uh, whatever you can do to try and figure out attribution from that channel, not an easy task, obviously, but um, whether you can have QR codes or specific links related to that Delta trial, for example, in the case of Explorer, uh, I think that's a helpful way to try and understand, you know, what kind of payback you're getting on that. Because like I said, at the end of the day, you know, you only have so many hours and so much time to spend on different placements. So you have to feel like it's, it's driving trial for you. Yeah, I think if you don't have a QR code on that product, you're kind of like throwing that customer away after they try your product. Like, yeah, the, the revenue growth is great, but and like maybe they'll come back and find your product, but like you don't have visibility into that customer. So I think getting a QR code into that product, making sure that you're capturing that post-purchase uh, feedback from that customer, cough, cough, we stock, and like making sure that you're really pushing uh, that customer to at least like, again, and be able to attribute that customer somewhere. So you're collecting their information uh, because like, you don't know if you're actually going to be able to service them in their end destination, right? They're trying your product and they might just get frustrated that they can't actually go find it. Uh, but like, or you want to give them a quick way to convert and buy the product online. Uh, I think for us, like when we were, we did a few things for Delta, like early on in a few of my previous stops, but like, it was always like, how much time do we want to spend making a custom smaller skew? Uh, for like a singular account, like early days versus just like go push out our core items into traditional like retail. So it's always hard to like balance that. Like, do I need to stop everything, create a new SKU for like Delta, which is going to be a great order and a great bit of business, but it's not like the same thing as like a Publix or a Walmart or a Kroger order. So it's kind of tough to balance all that for sure. Taylor, how about you? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, well, even just hearing him talk about it, like he, he mentioned on the podcast because he tried it on a plane. I mean, like even just getting people to try new products, I think it's a really great source. And you're also kind of like attentive when you're on a plane, like, you know, I'm the loser who works the whole time, but like most people just sit and like enjoy their coffee, which they never do or enjoy their drinks. So I actually think you have this kind of like uninterrupted time to have people try products. And I feel like most people try things in transit on the go and technically you're in transit, but like you're kind of trapped. Um, so I know a bunch of brands. I mean, we've talked with, you know, you, we all know the guys at Tip Top and you know, Archer Roost too, who I know CJ and their team have invested. And there's a lot of people that have, I think Hella Bitters. I don't know. There's a lot of companies that I know have presence on planes. And um, I, I think generally from a 
brand, you know, engagement perspective, I think it's a great opportunity to get people to try it. I do think that, like you said, doing something like a QR code uh, just helps to try to capture that, you know, consumer. But I was also thinking too, is like, um, I have like a Delta Amex card. I don't know if like there's any way to actually like also sync up like some type of like, you know, um, repurchase. Yeah. Yeah, So Mm -hmm. like if Archer Roos, so let's use Archer Roos. So if Archer Roos, if someone you know, is on a Delta flight and they purchase a can or even regardless of who purchase it, I wonder if there's some like points or perk that I can get on a case or, you know, a recurring subscription of those products that are on those flights. Um, what I'd have to see there, Taylor, and, you know, yeah. like I'd have to see some kind of order of magnitude higher follow through than just yeah. anything else that you're using, whether it's like through Ibotta or any other product. I'm like, I mean, the, the execution on those things are so low that like, yeah. I, in, unless we're positing that like being trapped in a seat for three hours makes makes you, uh, you know, infinitely more likely to execute said program, then, then yeah. I, I think it's very hard to value on, on you know, you know, with, without really, really solid attribution numbers. Um, that I, makes sense. I'm not anti it, I, I've, but I've just, I've seen a lot of companies make that like the cornerstone of their raise like we mm-hmm. therefore we are deserving of a series c or a series a and and, and I, I i am skeptical of that doesn't mean it's bad doesn't mean I, I'm, I'm i'm categorically against it i'm just much more nuanced about it yeah is it does it go back to like you're stopping everything to make a cut usually a custom skew for these people for the order size is not going to be the same of like a traditional larger retailer or what's kind of the thought process yeah, behind that that certainly makes it worse. Like it is, it is like a, a, a you know a, an airline program where they are using the same the same that you can offer in stores better. Um, but but for me, like I mean, if if they're going to give you the full margin, um, and and the only thing that you're going to have is like a tremendous complication in your in your supply chain because the delta like like you know I'll use Delta for example. We're picking on them, but there are a lot of other ones. Delta doesn't sign like long-term contracts they'll just show up one month with like you know a, a fifty thousand unit order and then they won't show up for two more months um so it forces you to hold a tremendous amount of safety stock to service that that particular customer um and 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 the organizational ta- that organizational tax needs to be taken into account um then i drop down to you know what does the margin look like and how is that different than running through your traditional channels um and and then i start to try and build some kind of heuristic around, okay, what is the value as a marketing channel? Yeah. I mean, I remember like when I started out in seafood, like the first account I ever bagged was HelloFresh and it ended up being our biggest account. We did like four or $5 million a year in them, but it was like custom cuts of everything. And it was like, we had to custom order everything. We had to custom pack everything. The margins weren't great, but the order size was huge. And then, you know, you'd have a great commission check in a great month, but then they wouldn't come back for like two or three months. So like that repetition is really tough and it's really hard to scale that out because you have to make the upfront like machinery purchases and all of that and all the packaging purchases. And then you'd be kind of like screwed after if they weren't ordering for a couple months or if salmon wasn't on the menu for a couple of months, it's just kind of at the whim of the chef. And so uh, this is a little bit different since it's an everyday item, but yeah, those custom packages and stuff are, are definitely tough sometimes. I will say, I actually, it's funny you mentioned that Alex, I talked to the team this week on a demo the founders 
I think are like pretty, are pretty young. Like they looked over zoom and like, they're just like so bundled up, like so crisp. I was really super impressed with just kind of like where they're at, like both in life and their business stage. Uh, and so was, was really impressed by them. So, and especially for like, this is a competitive saturated space. So it, it's a standout. That's awesome. It's a tough category. CJ, what, uh, what products uh, stood out to you here? Um, I have been just, um, absolutely crushing the chubby snacks uh peanut butter and jelly clouds i've been crushing them um i've been enjoying getting to know the, the leadership there hey i i, I talked i talked to, i think i talked to Alex about this taylor and, and cameron how many um uncrushed fuckers <coughs> version like single units you know, don't go box single units do you think that costco sells a year okay i've seen them out i would say yeah. yeah go ahead, guess. Just single units. Uh, yeah. I would say it's it, like low hundred thousand, hundreds of thousands. I was going to say a few hundred thousand. Yeah. 120 million. Oh, wow. What? <laughs> what? People, people just do not like whipping out two pieces of bread and slathering some no. jelly on it. <laughs> so, I, I mean, obviously there was an interesting market there. And like, I, I, I do like... So you're telling me that their problem slide resonated with you for, for, for jobs. <laughs> <laughs> the market size was a check. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like, <laughs> the interesting thing is like, it's, it's been like pulling teeth to get these guys to give me any information, but I think they might be on, on to some, like just a massive market, you know, you know pretty, pretty easy to figure out the size of, um, of Uncrustables. It's like a five or $600 million business, but I love it whenever there's like a single, a single dominant food 1.0 competitor. Um, and then someone who's like, Hey man, I'm going to make it a little bit better for you. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a pretty, pretty coherent story. It's, it's done so well that I think Smucker built a billion dollar facility at the end of last year to continue to support the growth of that product. So um, they're obviously bullish on it internally. And uh, yeah, to your point, they, they have a bit of a monopoly on the, the PB and J there. It's just so good. I've never had either product. To like, I gotta check it out. Sorry, Taylor. Of, co- of course, of course, Cam, you have not tried <laughs> Uncrustables. But like you always see on TikTok, like all these people trying to like recreate something that really doesn't need to be, that's what my husband's saying. He always says, he's like, why are all these people trying to just like recreate shit that like, pardon my friends, that like works very well and doesn't need to be recreated, which is a very good point. And um, Uncrustables is a great example. Like just buy it. Like just buy it. It's great. It is what it is. Um, I think it's a great product and I, but I am a peanut butter. I've been a crunchy peanut butter, honey and banana person my whole life, um, which I haven't really seen. Everything's about the jelly, but if they ever did one of those, there are people that love peanut butter. And I mean, I'm not like a Elvis Presley, like bacon in my peanut butter thing, but like just saying, if you just veer a little bit outside of the jelly, I think they also may have a few other people like myself who would try some other options, but no, don't mess with what's working. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Well, there's a, there's a peanut butter company called home plate and they make a peanut butter uh, with like a banana peanut butter. Uh, that's, that's a killer uh, combination. They also, uh, or no, it's a honey version, which is really good. Uh, it's definitely a strong combination. Uh, Taylor, how about you? What, what kind of caught your eye over the last week? Um, a woman started a business called Chatty Matcha. Um, her name is Elise. Um, I've never really tried matcha. What a shocker. Um, not really in my day-to-day 
wheelhouse much more in the Celsius space. Um, I liked it. Um, so it says it has, let's see, 35 calories, 71 grams of caffeine, uh, really pretty packaging. It's like a light mint, very slim can. Everything is in cans. Um, my feedback was I, she, she asked for my, some, for some feedback. I thought it was a subtle flavor. I don't really know what I'm basing off of because I don't really have matcha. Um, it just, it, it, I would love a little bit more of a punch, but I thought it was pretty good. Um, but again, I, this isn't really my space, but I liked it. And, and honestly, I think for, you know, people like me, I'm not like a huge coffee fan. Um, and I don't always want tea and stuff like that. And, um, I think it could be a really nice, um, I don't know, just different option that, uh, wasn't, I don't know. I never really had considered before. Have you guys tried like canned matcha before? I've tried matcha bar uh, products before, but nothing else. I really like matcha bar products. Like they're, they're really good, but that's like a glass jar. Uh, so probably not like a, like same kind of like, like the kind of milky kind of latte uh, version you're probably yeah. talking about. Yeah, it did. It was like, actually like it, it didn't really have it to me. I don't think it had any milk in it, but it just, it, it was like kind of like, like, it, I don't know, it just tastes a little bit watery, but not in a bad way. I mean, I'm assuming if I made matcha at home and I didn't put anything in it um, and I just use like matcha powder and water or whatever, and I didn't put milk, that would be the taste of this. So I, I liked it. It tasted pretty natural. It has a lot of caffeine. So I, I, I like it. I, I thought it was subtle taste. I would try it again for sure. Awesome. Yeah, so for me, uh, Taylor, I think you know the product. I'm having my last one now, but Batera, uh, I think that's how you pronounce it, right? It's a non, kind of like a non-alcoholic, bitter, sparkling beverage. Oh, um, yeah. So I'm having the elderflower lime one which, right now, which is good, but I ordered a 12-pack. Like, this is my last one. I don't know if you're supposed to just drink it by itself because you've mentioned, like, mixing it with, like, club soda and different <laughs> things, and I know they, they give some recipes on that, but, like, I'm just kind of digging it by itself, like, it's only like three grams of sugar or something like that, like 15, 16 calories just gives you kind of like a different kind of like if you're craving like something like more bitter, like as a beverage throughout the day, like sometimes I get tired just drinking like seltzer throughout the day. So um, I love the product though, kind of to me on like the same level as like a toast or a ghee or something like that. Yeah. Um, but really enjoyed it. Did you, have you tried the product yet, Taylor? I have, I, I've just been trying to, yeah, they sent me some, I've just been trying to figure out like where it fits for me. Um, I think if I would probably, I, I haven't tried it like as a standalone drink, I put it in, you know, like a fake tequila, fake, whatever, all the, all the fake booze that I'm now drinking a lot of, um, I put it in one of them. I like it. Um, I'm not like a huge, like full on juice fan. I don't like make cocktails with a lot of ingredients, but I like, like using it. What I thought worked well is whether you do it with alcohol or you do it with fake alcohol or you do it like by itself with club soda or whatever. I think just putting a splash of it in things for me was nice. I, I wouldn't drink it on its own accord, like as a standalone bottle, but that's just me. Um, but I like, I like using it as kind of like, you know, a splash of in the context of a drink. I thought it was nice for sure. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I was like, I don't know if this is what you're supposed to be drinking it, but like I've <laughs> crushed 12 bottles by themselves. So uh, Cam could do a review of me. all of them. <laughs> there you go. The other thing too is it's not my like a, a product call it. It's more of a moment of silence, but the, and we didn't put it, it's not like big enough for a topic, but very sad that they, I think they're discontinuing the, the Choco Taco was a big announcement this week. So a quick moment of silence for the Choco Taco, which is like a peak ice cream man products and, and very sad that my son's gonna 
grow up in a world where he can't grab a chocolate what? taco from Wait, the local. But I have a question around this. Like, you know, I have many thoughts. Like, don't get rid of the SpongeBob one. Don't get rid of the Push Pop one. There's mint chocolate. Obviously, the strawberry shortcake can't go anywhere. But like the chocolate eclair or like any of those like rocket pops, there's so many other things that you could have gotten rid of. Like, I just don't see the, the need for this, but whatever. I mean, I guess, I guess the the demand for the other for the other Klondike products are so high that like this is just like, <laughs> like I, I like to think that I don't know if any of you guys watch Letter Kenny or, or or any of the the derivations of that, but I like to think that that the the centrality of the drumstick in that show is is what's leading to this because there's the drumstick demand's just gone through the roof and they've had to throw Chaco Taco over the side. I fully yeah. nothing better than a stick. Yeah, I'm fully planning on stopping the ice cream man who like knows what he's doing, drives back by my like house like Saturday at like four when like the kids are like getting ready for like dinner and stuff. I'm definitely gonna go load up on Chaco Tacos this week. But that was one thing I had to I had to call out here before we, we transition over to our topics. Um well, Cam, one thing, one I gotta shout out another legacy treat. I, you know, I grew up in New Jersey and the chip witch was was one that was a part of my childhood and and there's an entrepreneur out there in the last couple of years who's been reviving it after it had been dead in its original formulation for for uh, for a number of years. So um, Choco Taco, RIP, but but Chipwich maybe back on many yes. Yeah, let's Def- go, New Jersey and Chipwich. You just hit <laughs> I was like Taylor. Speaking of New Jersey, when you commented on my Twitter post about my like donut with sprinkles, I was surprised you said. I especially like the donut would I thought you would have said Jimmy's instead of like sprinkles because I know a lot of people in Jersey refer them as Jimmy's instead of uh instead of sprinkles have you heard of that before yeah I mean it's case by case person by person I say sprinkles and I say subs I don't say hoagies yeah but you know I think it's tomato tomato as long as you as long as you eat it wawa I don't care what you call there you go all right, well, let's move to our first topic. Um, this is a blast uh, from the 90s past here, but um, Claire's kind of like the iconic uh, mall uh, store, which kind of like sells everything um, kind of underneath the sun, whether it's like rainbow shaped earrings or strawberry flavored lip gloss. Uh, it's kind of like the go-to place for kind of like chachis inside of the mall. Uh, I remember it being kind of like the place like inside of the mall, like especially in California growing up there, uh, has made a big comeback. They actually filed for bankruptcy back in 2018, uh, but had a huge year coming out of COVID, uh, turned a profit last year and our eyeing an IPO uh, coming up here. It's been kind of a blended strategy. They're still having a lot of success inside of the mall, but they're also having a lot of success partnering with other established retailers, kind of building out these Claire's sets, like you see a Warby Parker set or things like that inside of retailers as well. And I think they're also tapping into like Gen Z's thirst for nostalgia, um, which um, really kind of plays into this. And then the fact that a lot of millennials who have kids now used to shop at Claire's when they were younger, and I think like shopping that for their daughters and things like that too. So uh, Taylor, let's start with you on this topic. Uh, I'm sure you shopped at the Claire's back in the day. What was your kind of thoughts on the resurgence here? And do we think that there's like a playbook here for brick and mortar legacy brands here in the future? Um, yeah, I mean, I still go in there <laughs> at times. I mean, I'm 34, but um, yeah, no, I mean, like everything in Claire's just, I mean, if you look at like what you said, I mean, everything now in Claire's is relevant again, like Bath and Body Works. I think we've talked about like, I don't know, all these things, like they all kind of bounce back. And so everything that's in Claire's now seems to be even more relevant than when I was a kid. 
Um, no, by the way, that story was from a friend of mine. We should get her on the show, Liz Segrin, um, from Fast Company. And she writes some really good stuff. So I'm going to see if we can get her on. Um, but anyway, that aside, no, I think it's, um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think that they happen to be kind of in the mo mo the right moment in time, right? Like everything in there seems to be relevant again. And I don't know, I think it's, it just makes a lot of sense to me. I don't have much to comment other than the fact that like when I walk into Claire's now, I feel like as I said, it's even more relevant than when I was a kid. And uh, it's kind of cool. I would think about, I don't have kids yet, but like being able to go back into Claire's, you know, in my mid thirties and my kids are gonna be as excited as I was um that's just a cool thing so yeah i think it's it's just you know they kind of hit on the right uh, unintentionally intentionally they just they're kind of hitting the audience that uh is you know purchasing now the younger audience and i think it's just the right moment in time for the company to kind of have this moment in moment moment in the spotlight again so it's really exciting i'm yeah. all for it and i'm gonna get my ears pierced there again so there you go <laughs> Yeah, I agree. Um, my initial thoughts were like, I wonder how Hot Topic is doing, because it's also like a story I've not been in for quite a while, but that was more my go-to. Um, Alex, what, what are your kind of thoughts Re on this, kind of thoughts on traditional retail, kind of nostalgic brands, things like that? Uh, I mean, especially too, when it comes into like investment thesis and things like that. I'm sure, I, I know there's a lot of startups kind of playing in like the Revive Mall or Revive kind of uh, traditional retail space, but interested in kind of your thoughts. I think what, what Claire's figured out and what a lot of people are, are figuring out is that the mall isn't dead. It's just that the tier B and tier C malls are dead. The tier A malls are still fantastic places to be for a number of types of retailers. Uh, and what they've done is they've shifted away from the tier B and C locations into the non-mall locations and some of the partnerships that they've established, whether that be in CDS or Albertsons. And so I think that operationally has been um, really helpful for them. And then the other thing that's pretty pretty interesting about how they operate, it almost reminds me of, if you remember all the case studies that came out 15 years ago about how Zara's supply chain was set up. You know, they're doing in-house manufacturing and they're turning products around in four, six, eight weeks. And so what they've identified is an ability to sort of react to these trends and just put out kitschy products at really affordable prices so that you go in and you have your, your sort of treasure hunt experience and the, the absolute dollar price of that purchase is insignificant enough that you view it more almost as entertainment more than than maybe a purchase. Yeah, no, I agree. That's a that's a good kind of point on the tier A um, kind of malls versus the other ones. Well, CJ, what was uh, your thoughts on this? I think I think Alex's point of entertainment and experiential versus a purchase is right on. Like that's that's what's going on there, and it's something that actually can't work very well digitally like you, you almost need the treasure hunt like i'm in store like like you know half of the value that i'm getting from this thing is the hour i spent digging through claire's looking for these things um i you know the 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 thing that i think is yet to be seen and we've touched on this a couple of times like with the abercrombie aspect and some of the other products that have have come back like we are seeing i mean there's there's a fairly predictable 30-year gap in nostalgia and so you know, this is not the last thing from the 90s that we're going to see making a big making a big comeback. But when you when you have to spend a great deal of money to execute a CapEx strategy like they're doing this because they're not just closing stores in tier B and C malls, they are reopening those stores in in in, in other you know, out, more outdoor oriented shopping centers that are working. So like there's CapEx getting spent here. And I, and I just, like, I, it would be a very interesting fly um, wall to be on as a fly 
from a boardroom standpoint to figure out like just how confident they are on taking down 15 and 20 year leases in these new new spots banking on a nostalgia play um similar to the the thing that, that the conversation that must be going on in Abercrombie and the conversation that must be going on in in, in hot topic <laughs> to your point cam like like I'm, I'm curious how long this is going to last um and and i'm glad i don't have to make that decision based on like a 30-year nostalgia generational cycle well, and that, that 30 year cycle is amplified when you have formative experiences with a brand, right? So, Taylor, you mentioned you got your ears pierced set of Claire's, you know, many years ago. That's a formative experience for someone. I mean, you know, VMG actually, we have a, a portfolio company called Rowan where um, you can go and get your ears pierced. And, you know, it's, you know, we think a, a bit of a better experience maybe than, than in Claire's, but, but you have those cycles of nostalgia and you have that opportunity to, to be with a consumer at a really important moment for them. And if that's a good experience for them, they remember that forever. Yeah, and, but my, I guess my point is, I just don't know how much I'd be willing to open up a thousand or churn a thousand stores based on that nostalgia mm -hmm. and how long it's going to last. Cause that, 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 that generational set that has that experience that is maybe reintroducing their now Gen Z you know, in, in, you know, child to Claire's, it, it might be a limited window. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot of stuff they can do with social and online too. And, and they can kind of um, definitely capitalize on, on the nostalgia online as well. But like you said, like buying that hour out of the store, like rummaging through having that experience with your kids or yourself uh, is definitely part of this play. And it'll be interesting to see kind of how this pans out. Um, let's move over to the next topic. I think, super topical because we all four uh, deal with brands. It's something I, it's come up in just personal conversations with our brand partners over the last couple of weeks, but like we're seeing a lot of CBG companies pull back on teams um, and like really kind of make some hard decisions here. I've seen a bunch of public posts on LinkedIn of like, hey, listen, we just let go of XX and X, you know, here's kind of a public page to try to find them new spots. I think people are trying to do it the right way, but it looks like there's this really, really, really strong focus on I need to uh, stretch my runway for as long as possible right now in this market environment. Um, so I thought this was probably a good topic to talk about, you know, now that we have a couple um, venture capitalists in the room and and kind of talk a little bit more uh, about like what you're advising your companies, kind of what you've seen with your companies. And then myself and Taylor, like, you know, obviously we work with a ton of brands as well. We can kind of talk through what we see, but CJ, let's start with you. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Is it, is it advice you're giving to kind of your brands uh, in your portfolio? And is this the kind of the most immediate way that brands are looking to extend that runway right now? Um, okay. I'll start from the top. Like, I think that it's incredibly dangerous the amount of VCs that seem to be just beginning caught in their own echo chamber where they are pivoting on a dime from I was telling you to go after a ton of growth to now I'm telling you to get you know profitable like that, that that's that's damaging to the companies that you're in like if, if you weren't focused on profitability and a walk to acceptable margins before and you made a bunch of investment decisions based on that like what magic wand do you think is coming out of nowhere to like all of a sudden fix these companies that you probably bid up way too high um so I I, I, I do think that the overall switch and focus and, and we're, we're kind of the opposite in, in a lot of situations where it's possible we're continuing to push companies to grab share um, you know, while going along the exact same walk to profitability that we already anticipated prior to the, 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 the environment switching. But layoffs in general, like if you, if you look at 
like the main difference between CPG investing and, and I think other early stage investing, like you have like the downside to CPG is you will always have marginal costs. Scale can help that, but like it, it never goes to zero. Um, the upside to CPG is like there's an entire apparatus set up for you to be able to push off variable costs into other aspects of the ecosystem, i.e. wholesalers and retailers that, that will, that will help limit the amount of, 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 you know, actual personnel you have to have on. So like, just like there are 10 X developers, there are 10 X salespeople. Um, and, and, you know, we're actually pushing our companies to go grab some of the really, really high talent that is getting laid off right now. Um, because there, there are only so much of that, of that, you know, you know, ecosystem to go around. I, you know, hopefully, you know, in, in many portfolios, you, you haven't seen the over hiring in CPG again, because the whole point of a distributor is to have a distributed sales force. That's not on your balance sheet. The whole point of a re, of a retailer is to have a place where customers can find you without you holding it on your balance sheet, but I'm sure the layoffs will come. Um, and the best we can do is just kind of pick through that unfortunate, um, you know, unfortunate outcome to try and, and strengthen companies that, that had a good plan to begin with. Yeah. I think, uh, being able to have the capital to build kind of during the downturn is we've seen that like obviously through past kind of cycles and, you know, people that came out of 2008 and everything and that cohort of companies. Um, so I think if you have the ability to go build and grab really talented people right now, it's definitely a benefit to those brands. Alex, what was, what's your kind of take and kind of how are you advising the companies during this time? You know, disproportionately, I think the layoffs that you see out there are driven by companies that were not yet profitable, overbuilt and chasing growth at unsustainable valuations, right? And so I think if, you know, we try to always prioritize businesses that are building sustainably and building with infrastructure and foundation, and so, you know, I, I don't think we have seen in our portfolio quite to the extent maybe that you've seen some of the headlines out there. Um, but I think that's something to be aware of as, a, as an entrepreneur, if you're partnering, you know, with a venture capital firm, inherently one flaw in the venture capital model is that many of the earlier stage firms, you know, they're building to larger outcomes and they just need one or two of those larger outcomes to have a successful portfolio. Um, whereas I would say, you know, at VMG, we're in more of the singles and doubles business as opposed to a, a couple home runs and, and many, many strikeouts. So I think just as I think it's a good wake up for the market to think about building sustainable businesses at reasonable valuations and not chasing growth at any cost. You know, internally, we, we work really closely with, with all of our brands and, and portfolio companies and, and, and try and and tackle market challenges uh, as, as they arise. Uh, sometimes there are difficult conversations to be had, but we try and be there and be good partners and help them think through not maybe making snap pivot decisions like like uh, like CJ mentioned, because you know, to, to, to his point, you know, there's some great people out there right now who are without jobs and it's really maybe not to, to any fault of their own. So in some instances, we're also encouraging our folks to go and chase after them. If there's, if you're like, let's say your company that has to extend the runway right now for survival and you're looking to make cuts um, kind of in other places and want to maintain the team, like where do you usually advise those companies to, hey, like maybe you can tighten up here versus like letting go of the staff, right? Like, you know, CJ, you had mentioned it's different with CPG and tech, like most of, you know, the, the costs that go into running a tech business is people, right? There's not a ton like in terms of product uh, similar to like CPGs. So 
kind of wondering like where you advise those companies like hey maybe you can get creative here instead of like having to let go of these people who've been integral in building the business yeah i mean un unfortunately if they've if they've overhired into a place where they you know they don't have like you know really beneficial cash conversion cycles or you know vendors who are willing to to, to take terms right now to be helpful partners like there, there, there aren't a whole lot of other places left to cut. Uh, you know, so if, the, if, you know, if they, if they overhired in, into that particular situation, then there's, there's not much else, but you know, you know, the, those are the places that, that you look for first, like where they're, where they're, you know, beneficial suppliers that might extend you terms because they understand this is hard for everyone, you know, where, where, where can you potentially, you know, it maybe even go as far as like factor some of your receivables to, to be able to hold on to people that you know are special talents. If they're, if they're not special talents in this particular environment you overhired, you're going to have to cut. Yeah. Alex, you uh, agree with those points or anything to add? I think those are all really fair points. I think it's also really critical to take a look at your marketing budget and how you're approaching it. I think the excess um, capital in the system has really driven uh, a, a really sort of race to the bottom of everyone overspending on marketing. So you need to still build your brand and you need to go acquire customers, but um, maybe taking a finer point to how you're approaching that as well. And Taylor, I know mean, obviously you work with a ton of brands and you're, you're having conversations with them daily. Are you, are you seeing this kind of trend of, of people tightening up here uh, going into Q3 and Q4 this year? Some are. Um, and then also some are like looking into um, one of our favorites, like Chris from Beso, for example. Um, he's like in the process of hiring some cool roles. And, you know, some of them are going to be like transition roles where versus always just hiring people into full-time roles it's it's whether it's part-time or consultant basis and then kind of integrate them into full-time roles which i think is an interesting way because not every company obviously especially at like startup to mid-size can you know bring in i mean i agree i think it is a great point of attack to bring in people that are you know looking for jobs in, in this moment in time but if you know from a full-time perspective some of these companies may may not be able to do that kind of at the same degree that others can. So I kind of like his concept of bringing in people um, more on the specialist side and whether it's like on a contract or freelance or intern basis, and then over time, bring them on full time. Um, I think that's great. And then, yeah, I mean, generally I have heard some companies that have had to scale back, but overall, I think, um, you know, I think it's mainly more on the agency side that they're like not bringing in as many big or mid-sized agencies, not as many in terms of like, I think focus on continuing to hire the right people is still a focus across all the brands that I advise. Um, but reassessing, I think we've talked about this before, kind of the need and the use case for big agencies or agencies at all, I think is being reevaluated more so from what I'm seeing than, you know, bringing in people and talent because those are kind of, for the most part, irreplaceable. If you find good talent, hold on to it as much as you can, so. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think the agency conversations is critical for a lot of these brands to have. Um, but yeah, I think like, I think it was a worth a, a solid conversation. A lot of our brands are obviously raising or, you know, we haven't yeah. raised capital right now and are making tough decisions. So not a lighter conversation to have, but I think it's something that's definitely necessary for some of the brands to hear. Uh, we can transition now kind of off that and into like our next topic. Um, an article that I actually thought was super interesting uh, we love kind of checking modern retail for um, for some cool headlines. This one was all about DTC brands, really focusing on what they call second tier sports to find new audiences. 
they mentioned NASCAR in here, but NASCAR is pretty huge, and I wouldn't really classify them as a second. Uh, how, how, co- how coastal is this magazine that they <laughs> that going after a NASCAR like, <laughs> is a second tier? Yeah, I was like, I don't know what NASCAR is, but they did bring up like Vori uh, sponsoring pickleball. Uh, they talked a lot about like skaters, uh, surf, surfing, like extreme sports. Uh, I think athletic brewing just launched a program now where they're sponsoring college athletes because there's a lot more flexibility um, in college um, uh, college sponsorships now. Formula One, which has really been picking up, they were talking about like Drive Coffee um, now sponsoring that. I think figuring out ways for brands to get creative around sponsorships uh, when like traditional Facebook ads and things like that aren't providing the ROI, which I think are like a lot more fun and a lot more in line with what the brand actually wants to accomplish. Um, is super interesting. And I think a lot of times these programs aren't actually as expensive as people would expect. Uh, so Alex, when we kick it to you first, what, what was your kind of thoughts on this approach? And, and do you guys have any brands in the portfolio that are approaching these types of partnerships in a creative and interesting way? So I, I completely resonate with the with the, the motivation behind this, right? Because customer acquisition costs have just gotten significantly more expensive following iOS 14 last year. And Folks are looking for ways to to acquire customers more cheaply, whether that's experimenting with other social platforms like TikTok and Pinterest or doing out of home, or in this case, sports marketing. I think this is actually a really good example of an arena where you need to be really careful with. It's very easy to pour a bunch of dollars into this and not not maybe get much out of it. So I I actually really resonated with the quote in the article you shared um, by the Kuryuma um, uh, founder who said, you need to make sure that that athlete is 100% aligned with your values, with your customer. It needs to be a really natural fit. And I think actually the more niche, the better, right? And, and I agree, NASCAR's, <laughs> NASCAR's maybe not a great comp here, but but going after skateboarders or surfers for, for a, a brand of that feel, uh, I think that makes a lot more sense than, than going bigger. CJ, how about, how about you? Kind of what were your thoughts on this? I, you know, I, I think you actually brought up the most interesting implication here um, that, that the, the article uh, you know, didn't seem to touch on, or at least in the skim that I gave. Like, I think NIL and, and working with college athletes is going to be a really, really interesting place for like the next decade and, and figuring it out because, you know, they're, they're on, on the one hand, there's a natural intransigency to to, to how long they're in, in this school, um, you know, how long you can, you can actually you know, work directly with them as an athlete and then what they end up matriculating into. But, you know, the name of the game is, is buying like meaningful connection with consumers, you know, that actually resonates with your values for the least amount, you know, you know, per, you know, you know per interaction for lack of a better term. So I, I, I do think that pushing into, you know, th- this, incredibly rabid fan base around college sports that attaches both to personalities and you know and to entities is going to be a really really fascinating way to 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 figure this out but to alex's point you're just going to have to be even more careful you can't you can't you can't just all of a sudden spread much wider because that's available because then then you have more and more chances for you know, someone who doesn't share your brand values isn't out there acting as a, a great ambassador of, of what you're working with. And they're 18 year old kids. Let's not like, let's not forget that part. Like I did some really, really dumb shit when I was 18. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, taking that properly into account is going to be important, but I think it's, I think it's a massive opportunity. 
Yeah, no, I agree. I think the NL changes are are going to be are going to be big. My my nephew is like one of the top ten QBs coming out for twenty twenty five, and like he already has a ton of like commitments. But I'm like very intrigued to see like how companies start to approach and like if they will go like earlier, like senior year of high school, like freshman year of college, and like what that looks like. Uh, but I'll I'll report back if like any interesting brands <laughs> come to the forefront and like starts doing sponsorships. What about an honest retail sponsorship? <laughs> there we go. I imagine Lemon Perfect is super interested in that space. Like that's that's one of the reasons why we're diving in so deep. It just that's just it's so fraught with like, no man, don't go talk to the kid who's not even a senior in high school yet. Like, yeah. Um, but very interesting. And and I think too, I think like the the recent one that just like uh, went really well was like J Crew just launched with Pickleball, I think, or Recess. That's like the big pickleball company. And I think like the drop sold out in like twenty four hours. So uh, it, it's been pretty interesting to see. Like that's kind of what I would like. Kind of like up and coming sports, like things like that. I think work really well. Um, Taylor, obviously, you have a ton of experience on the marketing side of things. What were your kind of thoughts on this? And like, have you seen any brands uh, implement this yet? Well, I think this could be kind of cool on the, like, in like the, I was going to say like a lemon perfect or like a poppy or sound or even like any of the non-alk stuff. Oh no, there's just like a lot of these younger people that I think, uh, whether it's like less mainstream markets or just like kind of up and coming people that I think these up and coming brands could really kind of get in from the ground level, which I think is really important. Um, a lot of times I just feel like some of these partnerships, whether you're talking about like sponsors, you know, sports related sponsorships or elsewise just doesn't really feel authentic so if you can if you can get in with some of these people whether it's like a random sport and apparently you know who you, i'm gonna say pickleball's a random sport but what's his name's gonna say jake from midday squares is gonna text me right after this being like you don't know anything if you knew anything that's where everyone networks taylor i'm like okay fine never mind i take that back pickleball is in whatever but let's say like whether it's like an esoteric sport or like, for example, someone called me last week about a surfing uh, sponsorship opportunity, and they're specifically looking for, like, a lot of my non-alcoholic brand partners that um, are in, like, the fake wine, fake beer, because that fits into kind of more of the athletic lifestyle. So I think that's really interesting. And then also uh, <laughs> have to put on my, like, corporate comms hat for a minute. But I agree. I mean, when you are younger, it's like, there is a benefit to getting, you know, uh, I guess, associated with these people from a young age. But my old, like, corporate hat is like watch everything they're doing and make sure and so yeah i think you have to you have to really kind of tread lightly um but if you if you find partners whether you know it's kind of a secondary sports industry or not you find people kind of more more green and young um and you can help kind of groom them to become over time as they grow in their career and they grow with you i couldn't think of a a better way to find that partner right um because sometimes it just feels like it's so out of left field and if you can start working with people as they're developing their career and maybe you're developing your brand and together you guys evolve, I mean, that would be, that'd be the best case scenario. I think that'd be actually really cool to see, you know, a brand starting out, let's say like an athlete, big pickleball stars starting out, whatever. And then, you know, they grow that partnership. Usually it happens much later on in these relationships. Like, you know, the company's established and then they bring on someone established. I haven't really seen a lot of what I'm talking about. So that'd be really cool to see. Yeah, I think if I was an emerging brand and I didn't have the bandwidth, I mean, I think I would stick towards sponsoring the actual events or the actual league versus like kind of cherry picking individual athletes to like put my card up against. Like, 
I just feel like that's way too much exposure. I mean, like you look at like even like really, really well-known, like there was a ton of backlash for like State Farm and Aaron Rodgers after he was like an anti-vaxxer, right? So it's like, you're not going to do the same amount of background work that State Farm did and still like have those hiccups. So like, I think it's just, it's really difficult like to maybe like attach yourself to individual athletes, but like finding these like secondary leagues, whether it's like pickleball or I'm trying to figure out like the sport that like you have the net on the beach and like people are like, like slapping like the hand ball like in the middle like that's a really big like growing sport right now that i always see people playing like spike ball yeah yeah. so attaching yourself to like these kind of fun secondary sports i think might be the better route than like attaching yourself to like individual athletes for sure and and, uh and uh it will be interesting to see um kind of see how all that unfolds here um all right well it'll be kind of rapid fire for the last two uh kind of topics here um taylor let's start with you kind of here um we sent around an article that talked about Boston beer really kind of struggling here uh, as hard seltzer or kind of demand was decreasing, especially for their kind of uh, signature line, which is truly there. What was your take on this and kind of where do you see kind of their portfolio going uh, for here with this decline? I mean, it, someone just needs like have them stop commenting for a bit. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. It's just like, it's like every time I, every morning I read Mark Brown, it's like back to Sam Adams news. I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, I mean, I, I don't know if you guys saw that Atlantic story about like heart seltzers dead too. Like, um, you know, I think, it, I think everyone's kind of trying to, I mean, it, it is what it is. I don't really know. I mean, I was involved. I think some of you guys know in like helping to launch truly when it originally came out, I worked for Jim cook for a few years. And I mean, it was a huge adoption curve to even get people to understand. I mean, we went, I did some market research. There was like two or three brands in the space at that time. And I just don't think people got it for a long time. And then people did. And now maybe people are a little bit over it. I mean, it kind of just seems like it's, there's just that curve and, I don't really know, I, in my mind personally, like launching additional SKUs of, of this type of stuff, I don't think is going to move the needle. I think it's just a matter of maybe it's kind of leveling out, you know, like people didn't, at least from my understanding of when I was involved at the beginning, people didn't really get it. Then people got it, then it took off. And now it's like, okay, well, on to the next thing. So I think people will still be purchasing it. I just don't think it's going to continue to see that like massive spike that it did for a while. And in the meantime, just like stop like stop talking about it and I don't know I just feel like it's in the press every single day and I don't know how much additional news they can report about kind of the same exact thing which is right now you know Sam Adams is you know they're not in a great spot so I would just be like stay tuned we'll call we'll call you when we have something to say (laughs) is that rude can I can I do is that like can I go back to working for him and just be like look uh, no comment it's no that they have, it's that they have quarterly calls with analysts where they have to oh, explain fine, fine. why, like, like you know, <laughs> it's just what's the quarterly call, Burb? I'll just be right back. Right? <laughs> 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 just Taylor, like, like maybe they'll hire you to come on the next call. I'm just like, guys, this is so boring. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not even kidding. Like, I want to call everyone, and I know there's be like, I don't know who's doing this. No offense, but like, can we just maybe like skip a few rounds and call them, and maybe next year? I don't know. I'm not really sure. We're just bringing up someone from the circus to just like detract them from I, I don't know some something because it's just the same I don't know like it's, it's kind of like hearing press conferences it's like geez okay let's move on so yeah I mean I'm happy to to go back in house and try to you know distract people from these things if they have to do them um but yeah I mean I haven't really seen a lot of positive stuff being written so I, I wish that 
you know, there's more to, to share there, but I think just for now, it's like, it's just not a great, a great position to be in, but hopefully things will turn around for them. I don't know. Hard seltzer's not dying. Yeah. Really massively overestimated the size of the market. And then- That was it, right? They just, right, exactly. And, and like, and there's this weird like reflexivity that truly is super strong in the North Atlantic. So every analyst saw truly like in their own bodegas and like let like honest to God, let that influence them. Um, and they weren't like realizing that it was like, you, you know, you know, people were slashing like 60% off in Arizona, you know, Bevmos. Um, and like, and they just like, they, they, they came out way too high. They did. They didn't. They didn't completely cut and say, "Hey, this is this is a big problem. We, we, we're we're going to cut our projections down so low that we can then start beating them." Um, and they, they, you know, they, it's just it's just a horrible management of of of, a, of public reporting is is way more the issue that is turning into a lot of articles being like, "Is hard seltzer dead?" No, hard seltzer is not dead. It's not going to be growing at twenty percent a year anymore because it, you know its its base has gotten too big, but. This this is a truly problem, way more than it is a hard seltzer problem. Alex, how about how, what were your thoughts? I actually thought the most interesting piece of, of the article was, you know, the echo chamber that is sometimes the, the CPG and investing community, right? How many RTD cocktails and other types of uh, in that category have launched recently? And if you look at the the analysis, it looks like, you know, truly felt like they were losing less than 10% share to that segment. There was a lot of folks going back to light beer, going back to meat spirits, going back to wine even. And so as you did point, it's it's not dead. It, you know, maybe it was it hit its high peak and now it's stabling, it's it's uh it's stabilizing a bit. But I thought it was it was interesting and a good reminder to us that uh sometimes we're we're playing in our own echo chamber a little bit and maybe the noise is a little bit more. So I am curious to see where that uh, segment of the category goes. I think there's a lot of really interesting innovation, but I wouldn't categorize it as uh you know, RTD cocktails spell the death of hard seltzer. Yeah, I mean, I think almost like the hero image for this article explains us all. I mean, it's like a photo of truly hard seltzer margarita style. It's like if you need to like sum up a brand that's like kind of just throwing darts and trying to flood the market with new skews and grow that way, like that's that like doesn't even make sense to me as a consumer on what I'm about to crack open and enjoy right there. So uh, I know we're not going to hit the last topic right now. Uh, that's okay. Maybe we'll touch on it next week. Alex, I really appreciate you joining. Uh, it was really good to connect with you and meet you last week. Uh, and then great to have you on the show. Uh, appreciate you always listening and, and thanks so much for stopping by. Hey, this was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, everyone.